CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Mining is kind of the slow and steady wins the race approach. There's a misconception that the miners have huge amounts of Bitcoin. And it's not true because the miners are producing it slow and steady over time. Their reward for doing that is the cost of production is way, way low. If you've set up your operation correctly, your cost of producing a Bitcoin is orders of magnitude less than the retail price on the market. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the fourth episode of Coindesk's Bitcoin Having 2020 podcast series. On this episode, I'm joined by Dave Carlson, the co-founder and CEO of FPGA mining startup Altered Silicon. Since 2012, Dave has run megawatt-scale cryptocurrency mining operations in North America and has consulted for other large-scale mining projects. Also joining us on this episode is Galen Moore, Senior Research Analyst at Coindesk. Galen helped write the Coindesk Research Explainer Report on the Bitcoin halving and has been doing additional research on the use of surplus energy in Bitcoin mining. It's great to have you two on the show. How have you guys been holding up so far in this time of social distancing? Dave? Pretty much staying close to home and away from people, but that's my normal lifestyle anyway. <laughs> so not, not too much of a change there. <laughs> it really hasn't been that much of a change. Well, that's good. Galen, has it been a big change for you? And I mean, well, having the kids at home is uh, no picnic, let me tell you. But I was joking with a friend the other day that, you know, Boston's tagline for, for isolation is, we didn't really like you anyway. Uh, <laughs> so everybody here is, is keeping a suspicious distance from everyone else. And that's really, um, you know, physically it's different. But, uh, but in reality, that's kind of the attitude most people here in Boston have anyway. These definitely are strange times for sure, and probably less so for some of us than others. But today is also a bit of a strange episode for this podcast series, because while previous episodes were primarily looking ahead to the upcoming Bitcoin halving in May and its various impacts, today we're actually going to be taking a look back, not ahead. We're going to be looking back in time during the first and second Bitcoin halvings and talking about the historical evolution of Bitcoin mining technology. Dave, what can you tell me about the early Bitcoin mining equipment used back in 2012? Well, I started with GPUs and uh, ironically, I was playing with a program or a, um, a system uh, that Berkeley College uh, supports that is for sort of global combined computing, collective computing, which led to a project called Folding at Home, 
which um, you may have seen in the headlines, is has now become the largest supercomputer in the world, something like 15 times more collective computing power than than the largest supercomputer, and it's all working on COVID-19. And all my rigs, uh, I've converted back to whatever GPUs I could scrounge. All my GPUs, I should say, my personal sort of mining um, are currently folding for COVID cure. But back in 2012, I was doing almost the same thing and then uh, discovered um, Bitcoin. And so what, what became clear was there needed to be a more powerful, more efficient, power efficient way to mine Bitcoin than GPUs. And that's how I discovered FPGA. So there's been a full circle here because uh, Altered Silicon is mostly focused on FPGA compute and how that can be incorporated into blockchain processing. I'm glad that you mentioned GPUs and FPGA mining devices. For those of our non-technical listeners, can you give a brief description on what exactly GPUs are and what FPGAs are, as well as why did you start off mining Bitcoin with a GPU device? So the GPU is is just a general purpose calculation device, and, and it was created to take the load of processing off of the main computer processor in a, in a typical computer, specifically for the graphical processing. So it's like a graphics processing unit, and it really helped the gaming industry move to higher resolution and higher frame rates and better quality in, in the gaming experience. And they turn out to be extremely powerful computing processors. So uh, NVIDIA recognized this pretty early and started building developer plugins to let developers start to use those graphics processing cards to do other things than output high resolution game experiences. And so they end up being really useful for all kinds of scientific computing. And they still are. They're still used primarily in the training of AI, artificial intelligence models. Was there a community in that scientific computing industry or category that that, um, came over to crypto early as you did? Was that kind of a feeder? Yeah, there was, and there still still is. The platform that I was working with still exists. It's called Boink, Berkeley Open Initiative for Networked Computing. And there was a pretty lively community there. There's people that form teams and sort of compete with each other in terms of computing power. And there's even a points system, uh, if you can imagine sort of teams trying to earn points uh, just for pride, basically, because it's all volunteerism. And and so along comes Bitcoin, and it's sort of this realization that, hey, I can do this same activity, but I can make this thing that seems to be like money. And as I learned more about what Bitcoin was and sort of the premise that it was developed around, the economic premise, the more down the rabbit hole I went and the more committed I became to trying to run more Bitcoin mining and and how to do it more efficiently. And I'll just segue into the FPGA because in comparison to the GPU, the FPGA uh, stands for Field Programmable Gate Array. And all that really means is that a dedicated processor chip is a piece of silicon full of these electronically designed, engineered gates, these sort of on-off little switches. And 
the FPGA allows you to program a layout as if you were building a chip, try it out, see how well it works, and then re-engineer parts of it and then try it out again. Whereas in, in a dedicated chip development project, you make the chip and then you find out how well it works. So FPGAs become the precursor to a dedicated ASIC chip and ASICs are application specific integrated circuit. So essentially what we were doing with FPGAs with Bitcoin was we were perfecting the code that we would eventually put into actual silicon and make one of the first high efficiency dedicated pieces of, of silicon for mining Bitcoin. And we did that in 2013. And given that that was kind of the lead up to what we know today as in modern Bitcoin mining equipment as majority ASICs, is there still a use case for FPGAs in Bitcoin mining today? No. <laughs> no, there really isn't. Uh, it isn't to say you can't mine Bitcoin with an FPGA, but you would spend far more in the power cost than, than uh, you would receive in terms of the actual Bitcoin. So that is essentially the basis of the, the arms race of mining. And FPGAs gave way to ASIC very quickly, and then ASICs began to leapfrog rapidly ever since then. Going back to some of the reasons that you stated, Dave, for why after GPU mining, you had looked at FPGAs and how FPGAs gave way to ASICs. During the research, Galen, for the Coindesk having report, there were discussions and thoughts around the motivating factors propelling innovations in mining technology forward. What did you find were some of the most important or the most interesting factors in your view that made miners incentivized to look for a more advanced mining device that propelled even to, to look for something like an ASIC chip specifically for Bitcoin mining as being profitable to do. Would you say there were any turning points in the history of Bitcoin that you see as, as a real motivating factor to innovations in mining technology? Gosh, I don't know. Uh, I think the introduction of ASICs was kind of a watershed moment in terms of changing the way Bitcoin is mined and secured. I wasn't thinking about Bitcoin uh, at that time, uh, certainly not as much as Dave was. But I would say, you know, that's just sort of a natural evolution of a kind of arms race. If you know that a more powerful machine will get you more reward, uh, make your business more profitable, you'll be looking for the next more powerful machine all the time and knowing that your competitors are doing the same. I do think it's interesting the um, the way that's changed the decentralization, if you will, of Bitcoin. You know, to to sort of wonder uh, maybe about whether that was something Bitcoin's uh, founder or founders uh, had intended. Uh, certainly, you hear a lot of debate over that question. I, for one, I guess I'm in the you know ASICs are good for Bitcoin camp. But um, Dave, I'd be I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. Uh, on kind of how that system works and, and you know, whether it's to the benefit of um, Bitcoin as a uh, trust-minimized system. I was actually going to say, uh, maybe for some of our, our listeners, a brief rundown on what that debate actually is and how does ASIC technology impact the decentralization of, of Bitcoin's network. 
So first you have to talk about the ways of securing blockchains and the two primary ways that are that are in use today are a thing called proof of work, which is essentially doing some computing work that you can measure the difficulty and the amount and the time over which you did the computing work, or something called proof of stake, which is more like holding a certain amount of coins in your wallet, in your digital wallet, and then proving that you are still holding those coins and you haven't moved them. And that can function as a securing mechanism for blockchains. In the proof of work space, which is what we commonly call cryptocurrency mining, the two primary pieces of equipment that one would use would be either the GPU, uh, which is used for coins like Ethereum, or uh, an ASIC, a dedicated piece of silicon. And I don't think Satoshi had much awareness of chip development and the cycles and the inevitability that Bitcoin would be mined with ASICs. And the issue is, and has been since 2013, 2014, is that the decentralization of the network exists in conflict with the centralization of the securing of the network. So if the securing of the network is being done by large-scale cryptocurrency mining operations, the natural winner in that race is going to be the entity that can both design the silicon produce the silicon, put it on boards, produce the boards, produce the miners, and then put the miners in a giant warehouse and run them all for all of those things for the lowest price. That will be the entity that will win the uh, majority power in this struggle to be the one that gets paid the fees to secure the blockchain. So naturally, in the manufacturing race, you know, in, in 2012 and 2013, we were able to produce a, uh, an ASIC chip uh, and manufacture in China um, our miners. But very quickly after that, the actual Chinese engineering firms and Chinese producers of this technology far surpassed our ability and speed um, to get something to market. And so very quickly, you now see the result of that, which is that the, the, the largest producers of the mining equipment are coming out of China. But an interesting development kind of uh, took place in the 2015-16 timeframe. The amount of mining being done in China seemed to start to subside and started to coalesce around the most efficient power producing locations, which turns out to be hydro hydropower. And, and we have hydropower out here, and I was able to take advantage of that in the early days to um, essentially have the lowest cost of production. So we centralized for a while, and then we decentralized some, uh, some aspects of it. The manufacturing is still highly centralized in China, but the operation of the securing process is beginning to be more decentralized, but very large operations. We're talking like 100 megawatt or hundreds of megawatts being located in various places where access to hydropower is available. You've got some people who would sort of say that that's a kind of a centralization that's unacceptable, where when the kind of capital requirements, right, needed to mine. And so you see the ASIC resistant blockchains. Yeah. And then on the other side of it, the, the argument that 
you know, look, not being able to spin up a bunch of general purpose machines and suddenly direct them toward the network uh, is a defense and is a, a form of security that we would that we would want to have in Bitcoin or, or in any network. I think that's an interesting debate. I again, I do come down on the side of the, um, you know, th- that ASICs are good for, have been good for Bitcoin. Uh, I think the the sort of trend that you described, Dave, back and forth off of a kind of vertical integration in the industry, right? is a fascinating one. And we may be just at the beginning of that now in this cycle with this having approaching. Would you, would you agree? Yes. Fundamentally, and, and I am on your side of the, of the discussion, ASICs are generally good for Bitcoin, I believe, because it facilitates the, the, a massive proliferation or a, or a large-scaled rollout and I've built large GPU mines and I've built large ASIC mines. And by far, ASIC mines are more scalable. And the reason that's important is because proof of work and the, and the amount of computing power on a network all comes back to the, the level of security of the network and thereby this, the safeness of investing in that network all comes back to the cost of attacking that network. So if you want to attack a blockchain, you essentially have to achieve consensus. You have to con- you have to achieve power in in the power in the capacity of mining, uh, the capacity of the compute securing the network. You have to have and control more than fifty percent of that compute power for a period of time, not just once, but like over a period of hours or days to pull off an attack. If you tried to have more than fifty percent of all the computing power on the Bitcoin network, you would need to risk tens of billions of dollars. Not only that, just the logistics of physically deploying that much computing power all at once, it's just, it becomes less and less likely that that will ever happen. Uh, and, and more likely that, you know, if you were to attack Bitcoin specifically, that your investment would be lost the moment you were successful. So there's this mutually assured destruction principle as well as this incredibly high cost of attack that as the what they call the hash rate or hash power of the network grows and grows and grows exponentially, it becomes exponentially more difficult to attack and exponentially more secure to invest in or utilize. And as I understand, the hash rate of the Bitcoin network continued to grow quite exponentially even after the first ASIC was released onto the Bitcoin network. I'm curious to know what some of those major innovations in ASIC technology were that contributed to that rise in hash rate and making the Bitcoin network ultimately more costly to attack. Dave? In the earliest days, there were uh, these massive leaps. Uh, Our ASIC performed 50 times better than the FPGAs we were working with. And not only... 50 times more hash rate, but uh, at, a, at a power consumption that was something like 20 times less power. So there were these massive leaps in the early days, and those leaps get less and less effective. For example, this next halving coincides with a leap in technology efficiency that's only going to give us something like 30% less power consumption per unit of compute, and it does allow us to put more hash power in a single box, you know, which 
which is meaningful to a large scale producer that um, has a certain amount of shelf space and has deployed a certain amount of power infrastructure, and they can only physically fit so many boxes inside their giant giant mine. And so th- those kinds of factors really do matter a lot. But the effect of the technology leaps, it coinciding with the halvings is less and less. Uh, so the the resulting challenge ends up being, as far as the arms race, it ends up being how much can you scale? And that's why I, I say to anybody who contacts me interested in getting into scaled mining as an, as a sort of a new business venture, you should be thinking as a first step, something like 50 to 100 million watts, 100 megawatts of, of power as, as, you know, if you want to be in the game, you have to be huge now. It's, it's not unlike farming. As these efficiency gains have been decreasing over the years, and I imagine largely as a result of how chip sizes are starting to kind of reach their maximum potential in just being as, as small as they are now, I think they're what, seven nanometers um, is the latest uh, numbers that were posted by Bitmain. And as you had said, Dave, that now it the discussion focuses more on scale as opposed to what are the models of machines that I can get. I know, Galen, that you've been doing some research into some of the other innovations in mining happening in the industry, not so much due to hardware, but relevant to energy sources and supply. Could you explain a little bit about what kind of innovations when it comes to energy supply there's been so far? It really started actually with a conversation I had with Dave. And uh, I mean, I think the sort of in a nutshell, one of the responses to the, well, Bitcoin burns as much energy as uh, Switzerland or Denmark, Uh, you know, Bitcoin is not energy efficient. We can't afford to have it on a planet that's heating, et cetera. Uh, one of the responses to that has been, no, Bitcoin is a, an engine for using surplus energy. I think that's, that's true in potential, but I don't think it's proven true in, at any scale. There are a number of companies, uh, Crusoe Energy is one that I can think of off the top of my head, uh, that are doing um, uh, gas flare mining uh, on uh, natural gas fracking sites and, nat- and uh, other oil and gas production sites where there is... Um, some runoff or waste uh, fuel that can be used to run miners. Uh, this is stuff that would just get burned off otherwise. Uh, so now it's being used to secure Bitcoin. And uh, Dave, you and I talked about all of the surplus energy and hydro. What's interesting now is that you have the, uh, the S9, which I was talking with um, Wolfie Zhao, who is on Coindesk staff and covers the mining industry this morning. Uh, and he was pointing to data from Bitmain's past uh, disclosures, indicating that they may have sold as many as about 3 million of the S9. Uh, he described the, uh, the, the Antminer S9, which is the kind of, uh, at this point, is now the legacy model of mining equipment from Bitmain. Uh, he described it as uh, the, the killer machine. Uh, and I think I think that's that's not an exaggeration. Maybe an, an order of magnitude more in sales than any other model, for sure. I wonder. You know, I think Dave and, and you know you and I kind of went down this road a little bit. Maybe you'd talk a little bit about where you think that puts the possibility of doing, say, surplus energy mining. You know, putting this equipment to work in places where you might 
you know, at certain times of the year or day or month or week have free power flowing. Yeah, I think that's a thing. For years, it's been obvious to me that the largest mining operations in the world are ultimately going to be the power producers themselves. So long as you can see a differential in a market and make more money mining Bitcoin than providing the power to the network, the power network, those guys are going to see how they can monetize better. An interesting dynamic, and I don't, I don't know the hydro, hydro production as a business all that well, but I know that they do have significant issues related to what do you do with your surplus energy. Like at night, the water's still flowing, the dam's still making power, but nobody needs it. So what do you do with all of that? And there are these complicated plans, billion, multi-billion dollar projects to do something about that through essentially doing energy storage or surplus storage in, in one form of it that I think is, I don't know, it sounds silly to me. It's called pump storage and it's literally taking the water after it flows down through the dam, expending energy to pump it back up above the dam into a, uh, a big reservoir and then running it through the dam again when you actually need the power. The reason I feel that it's silly is because if you, for example, if you switched over to mining Bitcoin through the night with that extra energy, you'd be storing energy. It would just be in the form of, of a cryptocurrency. And if you're worried about the volatility, you can immediately convert your Bitcoin to a stable coin. And now you've got basically value storage and you haven't had to expend billions of dollars to get there. Now, then, then what can you do with it? Well, even in this area, there are the power lines that are fed from the actual local dams that run through the countryside. And then there are a large set of power lines that run all the way from Shell Energy from Canada. And the power companies here all have deals with Shell Energy. In case they need extra power, they can always tap off of those big lines at a higher rate, of course, and supplement their own energy production. And so that becomes the answer. You, you do energy storage in the form of value, crypto value. And then if you actually do need it, you just use that surplus energy, that surplus value you're storing and actually spend it on power capacity to supplement your own. That's a much more efficient and, and much more streamlined way to do it in, in my view. I think the, the problem with setting that up maybe is that uh, with the capital costs that we discussed earlier in this podcast, it's hard to justify putting something in place that you're only going to use part of the day. It might work out on the operating side, but does it work out on the in terms of return on investment? I've looked at that, of course, because it's a major factor in the idea. And the answer, in my opinion, is all those S9s. Those 3 million S9s that are now legacy, they're coming off the market because the average person who doesn't produce their own energy can't make a profit running them. But if you're producing your own energy and your, your actual operating cost is something approaching one cent per kilowatt hour, those S9s still make plenty of money. I theorized that you could get those S9s for the cost of picking them up from some of these large operators that just need them gone. They just need to clear the shelves. Yeah, I guess one one of these things has to cost nothing, right? And in this scenario, two of them might cost nothing, right? Right. <laughs> the energy and the equipment. 
Yeah, the, the energy's almost free and the equipment's almost free. And the whole thing costs a hell of a lot less than multi-billion dollar pump storage system. I guess the other thing that could be free would be the money, uh, which would which would be, you mean, like uh, maybe the money is, um, you're actually just using a, a miner to launder money, <laughs> right? If, if you, <laughs> if your purpose was not to make a profit, right, then, then, then it might be pr- uh, attractive to you to have that truckload of S9s as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In the, in the mining space, there's always been this dynamic that, I, that has concerned me a lot in the early days is what if there's a large participant in this ecosystem that comes in and will mine for a loss because none of us can mine for a loss. I mean, that doesn't compute. That doesn't make sense. But what if you had a reason to not care about losing money and and laundering money is one of those fear factors is like, Hey, there's a cost to laundering money. So for every dollar you spend and, and then you mine it, if it only outputs 70 cents, that's considered a good deal. And then that would be a killer to the mining ventures that are trying to do it on the up and up. That's actually really scary when you think about it, of mining being used to launder money. Tony Montana set up in Montana. (laughs) Everybody say hello to the bad guy. (laughs) In order to do that at scale, and this is the reason I don't think it happens, is because mining is kind of the slow and steady wins the race approach. Like there's a misconception that the miners have huge amounts of Bitcoin. And it's not true because the miners are producing it slow and steady over time. And their reward for doing that is the cost of production is way, way low. If you've set up your operation correctly, your cost of producing a Bitcoin is orders of magnitude less than the retail price on the market. While that's great, it doesn't lend itself to laundering a large amount of money because they want the return on that money typically, I, I think. I, I mean, I'm assuming here that the launderers would want their return nearly immediately because otherwise they're taking a market price risk, right? Long-term market price risk. Yeah. No, I I just think it's sort of fun to think about the inputs, right? Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I I think I would agree with you. It's probably unlikely that money laundering is is really a factor of any size. And honestly, I think actually it's something that um, one of the guests on an earlier podcast in this series was saying is that the the miners have been a, a really tremendous kind of community like a valuable force, not just, a, you know, besides securing the network, but, um, you know, coming to events and investing and other things. And so I think it, it is a, a time with this having approaching and we're at this sort of stage in the technology and the chip cycle. Uh, it is a time when you sort of have to, especially with the price doing crazy things, even crazier than normal. You have to sort of wonder how many, what effect that'll have on who comes out of this. Yeah. It's a tough, tough business. I can tell you this flash crash that happened uh, in March would have devastated existing operations. Even even the ones that were deploying the newest, latest, greatest machines that had, you know, had found a way because there's this minor pain cycle. You get the new equipment and you mine it out and you get to the end of the cycle. And just when prices are falling and difficulties rising and your mining output is barely producing enough USD to pay your fixed cost bills, your power and your labor and your leases and all of this. Along comes something crazy in the market. I mean, the oil producers are obviously living that that pain right now. Uh, it's, it's virtually the same thing. Only 
the Bitcoin miners just don't have access to billions and billions of dollars of bailout money. Isn't a large part of the reason why mining is just so much more of a difficult activity now than it was way before and perhaps why the minor pain cycle is just perhaps that much more painful now is because of how much more powerful these machines are. Uh, I'm curious to know your thoughts, Dave, on whether or not you think if hypothetically the Bitcoin mining industry had remained, the community had, had rallied to say, you know what? let's keep these operations at a GPU, CPU level, if mining really would have become as difficult of an operation as it is now, as big of an undertaking for a business or, or a person to, to even engage in? Well, uh, from this sort of standpoint of, of mining as an activity, it's, I don't see it as any more difficult now than it ever was. The numbers have changed, you know, the, but in general, you still put a shoebox, you know, with screaming loud fans on a shelf and you pack a facility as full as you can and deal with the heat in the summer. And it's all kind of the same from that perspective. Um, you're, the numbers have all gotten larger in terms of how much hash rate your boxes can produce. But because of the way uh, Bitcoin self-manages and self-levels, the, the actual amount of Bitcoin that's output goes down and down. And it's it's a crazy thing to experience. But what has become really difficult is the idea that if you want to be competitive as a business, you have to be at a scale that is so much larger. You know, the the first mining I did was in my basement. Then I built a 2,000 square foot warehouse that had a quarter of a megawatt. And then I built a two megawatt and then a five megawatt and then some tens and you know, and it just goes up and up and up from there. And I think that's where uh, either we're going to see mining as an industrial business, either it's going to be too volatile and it's going to fail and it's going to become a bunch of tiny mom and pop operations all over the world. Or what I think is going to happen is that, and we're I think we're already seeing this, is that um, Bitcoin is going to kind of level off. It's going through its sort of asymptotic growth curve. And when it levels off and becomes more sort of consistent and stable, um, then large scale operations can actually make proper cash plans and borrow money against assets and things like that. And it'll become a proper industry and it'll be very large scale. I'm not sure if I answered your question there. It actually leads very well into, into how I was hoping to wrap up our discussion. And that's, of course, looking ahead. Outside of innovations in hardware, which we see are slowly starting to produce less and less efficiency gains, um, and apart from the kind of innovations we know are being worked on when it comes to energy supply, Dave and Galen, what other area of mining uh, technology do you see being innovated in the future after the May having and, and in the many years to come after that? I think, um, I mean, right now I'm thinking a lot about this um, this idea of surplus energy mining that we've been thinking about here. Uh, I, you know, I do think that there's that there's a kind of a, a an interesting that Bitcoin presents an interesting, if improbable, promise that it could actually be used to finance clean energy development. And there are projects that have um, you know made attempts to do that, where if there is a 
you know, a source of um, of energy, but it's remote from the demand that Bitcoin, uh, as Dave put it, might be used to store energy. Uh, so I do think, like, if you if you think about decentralization and fragmentation of the industry that was once so consolidated in China, you, know, you might start to see some interesting projects uh, come up at different points in the world. You put that together with um, the the rise or or the sort of putative rise of CBDCs, central bank digital currencies. I think uh, you know hash rate. If if that becomes a thing, hash rate at some point in the future could become a strategic, a global strategic advantage, or at least nation states could view it that way. Uh, so I think that all uh, starts to put a whole other pretty interesting set of inputs into the um, into the mining equation. I'm not really answering your question because I don't think that's really a technology advancement. Uh, but I do think that that mining from an economic perspective might be about to go through a a, a pretty interesting set of uh, evolutions. I think it could be. I think it could be a mining advance, a technology advancement if you extend it just a tad to sort of like imagine integrated mining chips that live on solar panels, something like that. You know, I think that chase for efficiency and free, essentially free Bitcoin as a result of energy that you can harvest without a huge capital investment is is an interesting way of saying that that you know, that could be technology advancement. Isolated or orphaned energy uh, creation resources. So uh, what that would mean would be, for example, as oil prices and, and prices of other things like natural gas fall, certain assets out in the field that were installed, like say a, a well with a pump system connected to some sort of pipeline network carry provider may not be viable anymore. It may have to be essentially orphaned or shut off, put on a shelf until some future day. But if you don't care about your interconnect, uh, and this happened with, um, with overbuilding in solar and wind, where the power delivery is so spiky that the network providers, the ones that own the actual transmission lines, didn't want wind power anymore on their network. So they would refuse the interconnect agreement and you'd end up with a project that was sort of funded to build the wind turbines, but couldn't get the interconnect to actually connect to the grid. So then the whole thing becomes worthless. But if you don't need to connect to the grid because Bitcoin's your grid, you spin up that wind turbine, you put a mine at the base of it and connect it to the internet. Job done. Very interesting. It's interesting how something that starts off with an economic incentive motivates and turns into technological innovation. Thank you, Dave and Galen, for joining me today on another episode of Bitcoin Having 2020 Minor Perspectives. For everybody that's listening, you can find the social media links to Dave and Galen's profiles in today's show notes. I'm Christine Kim, a research analyst for Coindesk. For more research-related crypto insights on the upcoming Bitcoin Having, for which I'm sure these perspectives are highly relevant, be sure to check out the Coindesk Research Having Report, which Galen, I, and Noel Ackeson authored. It's out now on the Coindesk website and features additional commentary from mining industry experts like Dave and over 30 different having-related charts. You can stay up to date about what the Coindesk research team is producing, be it reports, webinars, and more podcasts through our Twitter channel, which you can also find a link to in today's show notes. 
I will be hosting the final podcast episode of this series next week. So please do tune in again then for the new episode where I'll be talking about the economics of Bitcoin mining with Thomas Heller at F2 Pool and Igor Runetz at BitRiver. Thanks everyone for listening. Talk to you guys next week.